we are obviously in the midst of an amazing study this year on the Word of God that Justin is leading us through. To cover the Bible in a year is an amazing task. And isn't he doing an amazing job of doing that? Uh, and I want to encourage you, if you've missed one of the, uh, one of the messages, get online. Get on his hands online or go on YouTube and find it. Uh, it's, you're going to be blessed. And I speak through experience because when I miss it or I'm working with the teens or otherwise, I go home and I either put it on the, on the TV or I go in my, my office. Uh, I take notes. Yes. Learn. Study the word. And I can promise you, you're going to be blessed. You're going to go deeper with the Lord. And you're going to hear his voice more and more. Now, right now, we're, we're in this last section, the last uh, of the units. Uh, we finished so much blood, and we're finishing today, messy uh, majesty. Now, what we've been doing is listening to the, the lives of the kings of Israel. Uh, it's a period of time, about 500 years. And Justin has picked out six of them that illustrate in the messiness of their lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And as he's been reminding us, that's what you get in the Word of God. It's not edited. It's not all the good stuff and take out all the bad stuff. It's real lives like yours and mine. And we find how God works in the midst of all of that. Let me just remind you where we've been. We first had Saul. He was the first king. Uh, used to unite the 12 tribes into a single nation. But Saul's problem was he worried too much about what everybody else thought about him, including himself. And he became threatened by others, especially David. And it ended up destroying him. Let me remind you, if you're seeking God, seek him with all your heart and let him be your audience of one. When you live for him, everybody else's opinion falls away. David understood that. Now, David lives about, about the year 1000 BC. He was the beloved king. Uh, was it messy? Yes. Did he make a lot of mistakes? Yes. But he kept having a heart for God. He consistently came back to his worship and his service to the one true, true king of kings. After David, his son Solomon, and Solomon started so good built the temple, got wisdom and, and riches beyond any, any king before, and we thought, how could, it's got to go great. It's got to finish well. No, he drifted. And I, I'm just, I was so blessed when Justin picked that word drift because with my Navy background, I had to learn that, that word pretty quick because in the 360 degrees of a compass, if you drift one degree in your destination... In 60 miles, you're off one mile. You will never get to your destination. It's the same in the spiritual journey. It's the same in your life. Don't drift. Keep checking your bearing to make certain that you're living for what you should be living for, for truth and love, grace. Solomon drifted away, and he ended terribly, and the entire nation paid the price. In the reign of his son, Rehoboam, the, the nation split in two. And it is, it is hard for us to keep track of the history because all of a sudden the, the kingdom of Israel isn't centered around Jerusalem anymore. It's, it's up to the north. And, and the ten tribes kept that collective name, Israel. And the, uh, the largest group, Judah, stayed around Jerusalem. And so it became the nation of Israel and the nation of Judah. 
for a period of time. And in that northern kingdom, Justin taught us about Ahab. Uh, He was feeble and he was foolish. Actually, I would say he was stupid and he was evil, but Justin's nicer than I am. Uh, He just, he went the way of the culture. He just picked any value and let everybody do anything they wanted to, and he did whatever he wanted to. The nation was destroyed. That led to the dispersion of the Jews across all the Mediterranean, Africa, Asia, and Europe as the northern kingdom was destroyed during the time of Hezekiah, who we heard about with Madison. And was, didn't Madison do a great job? Uh, he, had, he had one day's notice. That was amazing. Uh, Justin's given me a couple weeks, so anything I do wrong, it's all my fault. It really is. But yeah, what, what did we learn with Hezekiah? He, he was actually a great king for a long time, and he, he led a lot of renewal and revival in, in his nation, but he didn't care about the next generation. It was all about him. And the, the nation suffered greatly, just like the northern kingdom did with Ahab 200 years earlier. Following the reign of Hezekiah, things went poorly really, really bad. His son Manasseh became the king. He ruled for 55 years, and he was a disaster. He accepted anything that the culture wanted to do and participated in it gladly. He turned the temple over to worship all sorts of craziness, which I'll mention in a few moments. And it was a horrible time. After he passed, his son Ammon became the king, the nation had had enough. After just two years, his own people took him out in his house. They said, we can't deal with this anymore. And Ammon's son became the king, the royal blood. And that's who I have the privilege of talking about uh, today, and that's Josiah. And Josiah has a profound impact on every one of us who are here today. King Josiah. So I wanna start the story in this great role model, this great king, uh, Josiah, and we start in 2 Chronicles chapter 34. And this is what it says in the opening remarks of his reign. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father and did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, He began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved and metal images. An eight-year-old king. I don't know about you, but I would have difficulty with that. An eight-year-old president? Just think about that. Uh, My grandkids at age eight were still struggling with which direction they were supposed to kick the soccer ball or how to, how to swing the bat to hit the ball to get it out of the... You know, I mean, eight years old? And, and, and we're told here that, that when he was, had been reigning for eight more years, the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began seeking the Lord. Now, if we have teenagers here, don't be offended. He was 16 years old, and he was still referred to as a boy. Yes, in that culture, there weren't teenagers. They, weren't, they didn't have that period where you give someone a license and you say go for it and they start dating and maybe getting a job and all the rest of it no they they were not considered fully adult until they reached the age of 20. but the writer mentions that he, he was still a boy even the writer is amazed at this 
and he actively decides to seek the Lord. You see, what we need to remember is no one is ever too young to begin doing what's right. No one is ever too young to seek the Lord. That's why it's so special when we have all these baptisms each Sunday. Isn't it amazing? And so many young people getting up and saying, yes, I'm in. I'm all in. You know, think about it. Even Jesus at age 12 went to the temple and was teaching, and his, his parents lost track of where he was. They looked for him for three days, and, and they got to the temple and said, what are you doing? And he says, well, you must have known I'd be about my father's business. Do you remember Jesus said, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus took the children in his arms and he blessed them. You see, I, I think the, the current culture in many churches is wrong when they say, oh, the children, they're the future church. No, they're not. They're the church. And a little child shall lead them, we're told. Train them up in the way they shall go. They will not depart from the faith. Scripture's filled with, with promises and challenges to raise children in the faith and to let them seek the Lord. You're never too young. Listen to, listen to an amazing verse. I have a story to go with it. Uh, Paul is writing to his young follower, Timothy. And this is what he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Let me tell you my little story on that verse. Years ago, I'm driving our three sons, teenagers. The, the youngest was probably preteen. And some of their buddies in the car were heading off somewhere, some, probably some soccer game or something. And of course, the older boys start kidding young Kevin and just putting him down because he's just a little kid. And he said to them, hey, the Bible says, let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct in love and faith and impurity. That's what he said in the car. I don't remember, he probably aged 11 or 12. You can imagine what happened in that car. You could have heard a pin drop. And one of the friends said, well, I guess he put us in our place. I don't think they kidded him until, well, probably until they got out of the car. <laughs> but he got it. Are you helping your kids and grandkids to get it? They may be young. But even Jesus said we must become like little children. There's something about children who, who learn at that age what truth is, what love is, what acceptance is and grace and making wise choices. We learn that from Josiah. He becomes king at eight. By the time he's 16, he's already on the path, seeking to be a, a good follower of the Lord. He seeks the Lord. Wow. But, you know, I'm going to just pause for a moment, a little footnote. You're never too old either. Let me just say, you're never too old to seek the Lord, are you? I mean, think about Moses. He had his burning bush experience when he was 80. He finally got through all the plagues, got people out of Egypt, got over to the promised land. He was 120 when he was finally called home. One of my heroes, Augustine of Canterbury, he was a monk in Rome in the 6th century when he was assigned to go to England and bring the faith, be an evangelist to the area of England. He's now known as the Apostle to the English. 
He set off on that task at age 86. Isn't that amazing? A week ago, Tuesday, I had the privilege of being at the Tuesday morning men's Bible study. We meet out here at 7 a.m., very informal. Every guy on this, in this room, you should make arrangements to join us at 7 o'clock on Tuesday. It's amazing. I had the privilege of sitting at a, at a table with Megan McTeer's grandfather. He was teaching us just his thoughts about a particular verse in Jonah. It was so profound, I looked to him and said, I'm going to write that down when I get home. I turned to the guys at the table, I said, if you ever hear me quote this again, you know where it's come from. Ed Tanner was a missionary in Bolivia. He's 90. You are never too young and you are never too old to give up seeking the Lord. Encourage your grandparents. <laughs> Encourage your spouses. Encourage your kids and your grandkids. It's the most important thing you can ever do. Seek the Lord first. And Josiah did it. And think about it. It wasn't because of his dad. His dad was a disaster. It wasn't because of his grandfather. His grandfather was a disaster. It wasn't really because of his great-grandfather, although he did, could learn a lot from his life, Hezekiah. He realized this is something he just had to do. He also found in that that to serve the Lord... You have to recognize that life is a team effort. Uh, I'm going to continue in Second Chronicles. And I want to read to you the, an amazing insight that, that he got, he understood. Um, it's Second Chronicles chapter 34. And I'm going to begin in verse 20. The king commanded Hilkiah, Akiham, the son of Zaphon, Albdan, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me. Now, you may not remember any of those names, but I want to mention some of them to you. Ilkiah was the high priest. There is no question that he was the king's mentor. I found in the journey, if, if you want to live life the way God wants you to, in the redeemed life we have in Jesus, see life as a team. This American bubble of individualism, it's a lie. We're not meant to figure it out on our own. Life, whatever that we're challenged in life to do, whatever that ministry is, whether it's being a parent or a single parent, or whether it's working, or whether it's doing some ministry or changing the world, whatever, it's meant to be part of a team. No one is given all the gifts by God. We're all part of the body. We're all meant to do it together. And one of the things that seems to be very critical is have a mentor. Have somebody who's a generation or two generations older who can share the ropes, give insights, not tell you what to do, but say, hey, you might want to think about this. You might want to think about that. You know, we all celebrate the Apostle Paul, and we'll get to him in a few more months. But he had Barnabas. If it wasn't for Barnabas, there wouldn't have been a Paul. And if it wasn't for Paul, there wouldn't have been a Timothy, or there wouldn't have been a Titus, or there wouldn't have been an all the other Silas, or the, all the others that helped. Always having someone giving us some help, but always working as part of a team. I find another one of these, these men, Zaphon, who's the, I guess, the king's secretary. In one chapter alone, Zaphon's name is mentioned nine times as having a significant role with the king. We do life 
together. If we're not careful and we do life by ourselves, we don't, we don't mean to, but we American men in particular seem to want to take credit for it. No, don't go there. It's all for the glory of God. And somehow this young king understood that. He understood that it was a team effort. So what did he do? Well, <laughs> it's kind of amazing. He sought to do what was right and to stop what was wrong. Second Kings chapter 22. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Zaphon, the son of Azala, son of Mesul, the secretary to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah, the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. And let them give to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is, the carpenters, to the builders, and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. I believe it's the only place in Scripture where we're told there's a group of people who are responsible for a whole lot of work, but there's no accountability needed because they were already known to be men of integrity. And it was the workmen. What did the king order? The temple needs to be cleansed. The temple needs to be cleaned up. All those false gods and idols and statues and all, they got to be gone because we're going to worship the Lord God. Now, you may not be ever a king or a queen, but we have places that, of influence our homes, our neighborhoods, our work environment, our schools. Where we can learn to do what's right. Where we do and we name the things that need to change. The king called the workers together and said, you got, you got to do it. I'll make sure the funds get in. You do what you know you can do. We aren't going to be standing over your shoulder. We're not going to micromanage. We just want you to make it right. And he started the work of cleansing the table. Let's remember he's still, in our language, a teenager. Wow. But he also tried to stop what was wrong. Two of, two of the things he, st he uh, stopped as much as he could right away was the worship of Baal. Baal was the god seen as the god of rain. He was a Canaanite and, and a Phoenician god. Very, very popular because it's a, a, a god who sought to teach people how to control things in life. If you follow the roots of Baal, he was Satan. And Satan worship was permitted in the nation because of his grandfather and father. And he said, no, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to worship Baal. He also stopped the worship of Asherah. Uh, Asherah was the, you, you occasionally run across an Asherah pole or an Asherah tree. This was the mother goddess. Uh, and it was the worship of nature, uh, fertility goddess. And he stopped that too. By the way, the roots of Ashtar is that she was the goddess, mother goddess of Satan, which God had previously forbidden any of his people from worshiping. And Josiah said, no, we're not going to do that. We are not going to do that. Now, maybe a pause for a moment and just give you an example of something that happened early on in my ministry. I was a youth pastor. And, you know, I, I wasn't as cool as Madison, but I tried to be cool. 
you know? And, and so I tried to act like I knew what was going on, understood everything, and one young gal in my youth group came to me and she said, she wanted to meet privately? And I said, sure, so we made an appointment and she came in and she said, you know, I really enjoy the Sunday night youth group. And I said, yeah, you seem to. You have, seem to have a lot of friends and seem to have a good time. And she said, yeah, and I'm learning a lot too. I said, well, that, I'm, I'm glad. She said, yeah, I'm learning about that. It's, it's a good way to live and living in the light, living in truth, living in Jesus. And I said, well, yeah, that's great. And I'm thinking, boy, this is going very well. And she said, but I, I need to tell you what I do on Friday nights. And I said, what's that? She, she said, I go up into the hills behind the high school and worship Satan. And I tried to be cool. I tried to act like I knew exactly what she was talking about. As I'm inside screaming, going, I got to get out of here. She had somehow thought that those two could work together. And so I just tried as calmly as I could to not scream and to say, you know, that won't work. And she said, yeah, I've come. There's some really popular kids up there, but I guess it's the difference between light and darkness. I said, yeah, that's a good way to put it. You know, you need to stop that. And she said, yeah, I guess I do. I guess I just needed the courage to tell you first. You know, I know we don't like to admit it. We like to think good of everybody, and we'd like to think everything is wonderful, and everybody has their choices. But there are choices that are dangerous, filled with darkness, and that's what Josiah needed to clean up. He said, this nation cannot be divided in their allegiance, and neither can you, and neither can your family. We need to be clear about the light. We need to be clear about truth. Josiah was. He sought to do what was right to cleanse the temple. He sought to stop what was wrong, the worship of that which is very destructive and dangerous, as history had shown in his own nation and the nation of Israel to the north. And then something wonderful happened. 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 8. Hilkiah the priest said to Zophon the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of God. And Hilkiah gave the book to Zophon, and he read it. And Zophon, the secretary, came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Zophon, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Zophon read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. This is a huge, huge event in the history of the Bible. Apparently, the workmen, as they're going through cleaning up the temple, knocking down false walls, building up, putting up more framing and all the rest, they discover in the midst of a secret room or some rubble, a book. It's referred to as the book of the law. Historians believe what they discovered was the book of Deuteronomy. And they, the high, they take it to the high priest. The high priest takes it to the secretary takes it to the team. The secretary takes it before the king. And the first thing he says to the king is, hey, the, the carpenters are doing their work. They're doing the building. It's really going well. They're caring for the funds and doing everything. And, and the king says, okay, good. He, he says, but they found this book. And he read it to the king. And the king tore his clothes in an act of horror and repentance that they have not been living as a nation the way they need to be living. We don't know how the book got lost in the temple. Maybe in the time uh, following Hezekiah, one of the priests just boarded it up. We don't know. 
Maybe they just in neglect and their desire to worship everything else on the planet. It just got pushed aside and ignored. But it discovered. And now the king has to do something about it. Mark Batterson, uh, in his wonderful book, um, he's got a couple of them, but uh, Chase the Lion, he uses a term that I think is applicable here. He refers to it as the Genesis moment. The Genesis moment when all of a sudden everything is new. This is Josiah's Genesis moment. It finally becomes perfectly clear. There's no doubt anymore about what he's doing or what his priorities are. As a friend taught me a long time ago, he knew what he knew what he knew. And no one could ever take it away from him. It's worth living for. It's worth dying for. You know the truth. Most everyone in this room probably has had a Genesis moment. It may have been as a kid. It may have been studying the word. It may have been listening to a song. It may be here on a Sunday. It may have been many decades ago. It may have been this past week or it may be tomorrow when you have a moment and you go, I believe this. I know this is true. We have a heavenly father who loves us and a plan and purpose for our lives. He sent his son Jesus from heaven to come to earth to teach us a new way to live. And he died so we could be forgiven and set free from all of our shame and all of our burdens. And we could live a life for him in the resurrection power of Jesus. And yes, in the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. And, and we are all brothers and sisters in this journey together. That is the, your Genesis moment. I believe that. And that's the game changer. Who has had a Genesis moment? Okay, folks, keep, keep your hands up for a while. Keep your hands up for a while. Folks, if you haven't had that moment, look around. You are surrounded by people who know this is true. And that's what happened to Josiah. He reads his book. He tears his clothes. He goes, oh, God, this, is, this is real. I am not playing games anymore. I may be young, but I'm not going to play the game anymore. 2 Kings chapter 14. So Hilkiah the priest and Achiham and Achbor, and there's often again, and Isaiah, went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and talked with her. What's going on? They said, we, we've got to put this to the test. We need a prophetess to tell us that this is really the word of God, not just another book. And what's interesting is, they don't go to Jeremiah. Why don't they go to Jeremiah? He was living then. Why go to Jeremiah? He's the, he's the one who is talking all the time. No, they go to the keeper of the closet. Apparently, she had a godly reputation. You know, if, if you discover something, you don't necessarily have to run to Justin. There may be someone in the pew sitting right next to you who will have a word of God for you. And they knew enough to go. This is a cool, another cool story in Scripture. It's right here with, with the life of Josiah. They go to the women, with the woman who, I guess, keeps the closet and says, tell us, is this really the word of God? She reads it and says, absolutely right. And our future as a nation is not good. And the king says, we're going to keep going. We're going to keep working at it, and we're going to leave the results to God. What does he do? He keeps cleansing the temple. 
and ensuring that everything is removed that isn't of God. He calls all the people in the whole nation and all their leaders to come to Jerusalem, and he renews the covenant with God. Covenant's a powerful word. It says it's a binding contract, often used in Scripture to refer to a lesser party, making a contract with a greater party, saying, I will be faithful no matter what. He establishes a binding covenant after he cleanses the temple, binding contract. He says, we are going to live according to the word of God. That's what we're going to do. He goes on in a remarkable way and celebrates the Passover. Now, we may have been comfortable with that word. It was first celebrated with Moses way back 600 years before Josiah. But even the writer of, of Kings and Chronicles says, never in all of the history of all the kings had Passover been celebrated like Josiah did. He recognized Passover is the celebration that God delivers us, that God makes all things new, that he redeems our lives, and he had a huge, huge, mega celebration of the Passover. Let me just remind you, that's what Jesus was doing with the apostles on the Last Supper, celebrating the Passover. That's what we do every Sunday when we take the bread and the cup. The roots of the Lord's Supper are all the way back to what Josiah did and all the way back to what Moses was commanded to do with the people. God really does redeem our lives. He really does. If any set apart some significant effort to take care of all the distractions in his nation. He not only took on Satan, he not only took on, took on the, the mother goddess, Asherah, he um, took on anybody who was worshiping the stars and said, no, there will not be any astrology. He took on those who were worshiping the sun and the moon and said, no, we're not going to play that game. We belong to God and we are people of the book. He took on fortune tellers and removed them. He took on the necromancers. Those are people who try to contact the dead. He took on them too. He took on the male cult prostitution rings that existed. And the one that I saved to last, he took on the worship of Moloch, which required you to kill your own children. He said, we will not do that again. We are the people of God. We worship the God of life, not death. This is one kid who is still in his 20s, and he says, we are going to live for God because we are people of the book. Now, we could celebrate, and I'd like to be able to say, you know, he lived well into his 80s, and he had a wonderful life. No, this is messy majesty. He was 39 years old, when Pharaoh Necho of Egypt started moving his entire army through what we call the Holy Land to have a big battle with the Assyrians up to the northeast. For some reason, Josiah felt he ought to stop that. Maybe it was hubris, just that, you know, he's done so well and everything else models will take on the Pharaoh and the army of Egypt. We don't, we don't know why. Even, it's quoted in Scripture, even... <laughs> Pharaoh said to Josiah, King, I have no beef with you. I don't want to fight you. 
God has called me to this mission. He has not called you to try to stop me. Josiah didn't listen. Hmm. And Josiah lost his life as the army of Judah was destroyed. And the Egyptian army marched north. And they were conquered by the Assyrians. And you know, if we're not careful, we say, oh, poor Josiah, he did so much for his nation and it's all forgotten. And you know what? We humans often do that, don't we? We look at life by the perspective of just our own lives. Or uh, if, we're, if we're faithful enough, we, we remember the, the re- reminder that Madison gave us last week that we need to be paying attention to the next generation. But I want to tell you the results are much, much bigger than that. You see, what Josiah had done was unite an entire nation under one God. And they were people of the book. Twelve years after Josiah was killed, the Assyrians came and began to destroy Jerusalem and had their first exile of the Jews to Babylon. It would happen two more times, and eventually the city would be leveled, and all the Jews under the Babylonians would move to Babylon. And you can say, oh, what a tragedy. But he left the results to God. You see, the religious leaders, as they gathered in in exile, said, what defines us anymore? We don't have the temple that's been destroyed. And in their own life, they could say, but we're the people of God. We're in a covenant relationship with God. Our king established that before his death. We worship the one God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're Jews. And we're people of the book. History accounts that during that period of 70 years, as prophet Jeremiah told them they would be there for 70 years before they could return to Jerusalem, they sat down and decided, these books we need to include as part of our canon. These books we do not need to include. This book we need. And they, they looked at Genesis and said, we need this. And they looked at Exodus and said, we need this. And they looked at Leviticus and Numbers and, yes, Deuteronomy. And they looked at some of the history books and some of the prophets and said, we need to include this because we are people of the book. That's our identity. We believe in the word of God. Isn't it interesting? 2,600 years later, we're still defined by that. We say it's the living word of God. It's Jesus. He is the word of God. But we still call this the word of God. Josiah was the first to say, pay attention. And oh yes, we still celebrate the Passover. Josiah did it in a big way and reminded people to keep looking to God because he is the one who reminds us. He's paid a price for us. We've been set free. We don't have to play the game of the culture we're living in. You you see, the message of this young king was extraordinary for us. And it's rippled not just through a generation, but through thousands of years. Seek God first. You're never too young. And yes, I'll add, we're never too old. Life is a team effort. If you don't know who your team is, build one. And that includes single moms 
and everybody else who thinks they're living alone. No, you don't have to bear all that yourself. You really don't. We're not wired to handle everything ourselves. We are not wired that way by God. He has us part of an army to face life together, and which often includes a mentor to help us, someone who's been a little bit further on the journey and has some idea of what we're in the midst of right now. Life's a team effort. To do what's right and to stop what's wrong, whatever part of your life you have that influence in. And then you're gonna discover, as many of us have in this room, you have a Genesis moment. You know it's true. God has a plan and purpose for your life. And as you do what's right and stop what's wrong, he's gonna reveal himself to you. And there's gonna be that moment where you go, I get it, I believe it. I know that I know that I know. And it establishes itself as the priority for life. You are loved that much by God. Jesus really did die for you. He really grants us his spirit every day to live for him. And yes, there's days we just need to keep going. Keep going, keep going. And leave the results to God. Who knows whether that orphan you're sponsoring right now will change a nation. Only God knows that. Who knows if that donation for Canvas might be just what's needed to help the family to find hope and healing. Who knows if that, that person that is having a tough time that you're praying for, who knows if your prayer isn't the one that opens up the highway for God to move. Only God knows that. Who knows if that unkind word to your spouse or to your kid can be corrected with just an apology from you and an assurance that they're still loved, accepted, and important. Who knows if that kind word to someone at work or that donation to some cause isn't the game changer that God's been waiting for us to do. Live your life for the Lord. Leave the results to him. One day we actually might see what happens. I don't know if we'll ever have the consequences of Josiah's life, but he was a great king. And he started at age eight. And he did what was right and stopped what was wrong in his life and in the lives of those he can influence. Make sense? Pretty awesome king, don't you think? Yeah, let's pray for an awesome king for our next election, huh? <laughs> okay, we ready? Ready to celebrate our understanding of the Passover? If you don't yet have a little cup, uh, please don't hesitate to go back and grab one. And um, we're going to remember what Jesus was celebrating and what he did for us as we remember Josiah's renewal and Moses' invitation because all of us are asked to leave behind the darkness, the guilt, the shame, and to remember that we are the body of Christ and we face life together. Please take the bread and let's pray. Blessed and holy Lord, we, we thank you that, that you're our Father and you love us and you sent Jesus to give his life, his body, so we could be part of your new body here on earth. We thank you for that privilege and that responsibility. We pray your blessing upon this bread that it would be for us the assurance that we belong to you and to one another in Jesus.
Now take the bread. And now the juice. Blessed and holy Lord Jesus, you took the cup and said, this is my blood. We thank you that you shed your blood for us, that we might be cleansed, that we might be forgiven, that we might be made new. Bless this cup, O oh Lord, that we would remind ourselves that in you, we are new. Make us alive to your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, let's drink the cup.